Well, great. Let's let's start with prayer. I'm just so delighted uh, that we have this opportunity to begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that morning after morning, day after day, crisis after crisis, the sun comes up and the word of God declares that your mercies are new every morning. So Lord, there is mercy today for everything that will happen. There is mercy today for the challenges. There is mercy today for the victories and the defeats. There is mercy today, Lord God, for everything that will happen. And we are so grateful and so thankful. We ask you, Lord, to take this time and through it, Lord God, inspire us, encourage us, instruct us, and help us, Lord, as we seek to be better channels for whom your spirit can move in the lives of those channels. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm Stephen. I think I've met a number of you, and a few of you I may not have met. We've been going through just some practical things about ministry to uh, folks that come. Like, they may come to us for prayer. We might find ourselves just in a situation where they're wanting prayer. And somewhere between a, uh, a high-octane uh, televised healing service and a classroom sort of church environment where there's no expectation that God could ever do anything at any time outside of any box, somewhere in that are, are those of us that, that believe that God did not stop doing miracles, that God did not stop the so-called supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that those are still active and, and God desires to move in our lives and in our church. At the same time, we've been a little bit jaded, perhaps, over the years by the, uh, well, some of the excesses, some of the, uh, it, it, it goes between bad theology and poor praxis, if that makes sense, you know, just the way things are done. And we're not trying to lift ourselves up and say that we know the right way, but we are trying to say that maybe if we really look at the scriptures and look at around us, we can with authenticity, we can with with genuine integrity, trust and believe the Holy Spirit can move through us without frankly some of the shenanigans that we, you know, that some many of us have experienced. And just a quick poll, how many how many have either been a part of or been exposed to kind of the broader charismatic movement over the last number of years? Okay, bye. And how many of you have scared to death? So today's little talk, we're talking about how to, how to pray. Because last week, we talked about a model for prayer. And one of the things that came out that sometimes people have some difficulty with, I know I did, is this idea of praying with authority or praying or speaking, actually praying, like speaking to an illness or, or, or a condition. And, Boy, that almost seems like paganism or something. You know, where in the world do we get that? So I thought it might be helpful to kind of unpack that. And it starts with the idea, and maybe the, the easiest way to start, is with Jesus' prayer when he taught the disciples, and it's reported for us in Matthew chapter 6. He said, when you pray, and he's, he's juxtapositioning it, in other words, he's contrasting it to the way that the Pharisees and others pray with with their elaborate prayers. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting? You know, and, and there's an expectation that you're going to go around the circle so you, it's not like spontaneous, you know when your time is going to be to pray. And several people have these incredibly eloquent prayers 
And instead of just turning your eyes on God, all you're thinking about is, I don't want to sound like a fool. Which is probably not the right motivation for praying, you know, when it's just supposed to be our heart being you know, poured out before the Lord. And it was probably worse in some cases uh, back in, in, in the Jewish times that Jesus, in which Jesus was ministering. And so he says, unlike these guys who just want to wow everybody with their prayers, when you pray, pray like this. And he's, you know, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be holy be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is such a profoundly loaded petition that we just, we, we, we buzz by it so quickly when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, if you look at the little paper we have here, and some of this is from the back side of the first week, uh, just this next part here. The kingdom of God, the rule or the reign of God, wherever God is king, if you will, it's not a place. You know, we aren't going to the kingdom of God from the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of God is, is wherever God is king. So think of the word reign rather than location. You know, so if, if um, putting an example, this is not a great example because the United States is not a monarchy or a uh, democracy. But imagine if I am in a foreign country uh, and... Uh, there's a problem and I'm arrested without cause, the first thing I say is, I want to talk to somebody from my embassy. I want you to notify the ambassador to this country because I'm American. And so even though I'm in the kingdom of whatever other country, my citizenship, my rights, have a lot to do with me being an American. So even though I'm no longer in the kingdom of America, I'm still under the ruling reign of the kingdom of America. On the other hand, if I were to physically break the law, if I were were over in Europe and I managed to find a gun and I robbed a convenience store and I was arrested and I started making the same claim, after investigating it, very likely the American embassy would say, sorry about it, you're on your own. You know, you you are also subject to the laws, the reasonable laws of that country and we look and you're going to have to go through their system. And so it's possible in a sense to be Part of one kingdom, yet influenced by an impact that we under under the, the rule and the authority of another kingdom at the same time. That sounds a little bit like um, we're in the world and not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and some of those the language kind of be sort of here and sort of there, but not completely there. You know, one way it's often described theologically is is the already and the not yet. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, where does this go? Where it goes is, when I'm praying for somebody who's sick, you know, the question is, will, will God heal them while I'm praying? Well, I don't know the answer to that, of course. But we try to figure out things like, well, maybe maybe the Lord's ordained for them to be sick, because maybe God's going to use the suffering of the sickness to work something in their life, and so on and so forth. Well, my motivation or my, my paradigm for praying is, is kind of simply this. Will there be sickness in heaven? We have absolute authority from Scripture that there will no longer be any sorrow or pain or mourning or sickness, any of those things. So all those things will be done away. So he says, may your kingdom come here on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is already in heaven. So I have, I have a certain degree of confidence that Sickness is not going to be existing in heaven 
it's okay for me to pray for the eradication of human sickness here on earth. Now, is everybody healed? No. It's, it's not a complete, absolute thing because, in fact, in the New Testament, they call these miracles signs and wonders. Signs, think of a sign like a, a signpost pointing to that future kingdom that where there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. Everybody who gets healed, actually physically healed here on earth, will get sick again. Lazarus was raised from the dead and at some point had a free will. Probably the only guy had two dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting note. And so the kingdom is this already not yet look at this at down there, just these little points I believe. At the way in which the kingdom of God is mentioned throughout the scriptures. That this kingdom will come to earth. Matthew 16, we just mentioned that. Your kingdom come. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom is already here. Second Peter 11, the kingdom, it says, is a future inheritance into which we will enter. Colossians 1, 13, the kingdom is a realm in which we've already entered. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world, but in Luke 17, 21, Jesus said the kingdom of God is already within you. So either Jesus is a liar, the text is unreliable, or the kingdom of God is this really dynamic, multifaceted, already here but not yet sort of thing. The kingdom of God in Matthew 12, 28 can come upon us. So it can come upon us. It's a future inheritance. It's a realm which we've already in. It's not of this world, but it's already within us, and it can come upon us. So the prepositions are all over the map on the kingdom of God. And so now we, we kind of want to hone down on the way that we pray with this kingdom structure in mind. So I'm going to be in Mark and Luke. I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark is my favorite of the, of the four Gospels, and there's nothing wrong with Matthew, Luke, or John. I just spent a lot more time studying Mark. Mark is probably, most scholars agree, the oldest of the Gospels, the first to be written. And it's by far the shortest. And what we love about Mark John Mark, who wrote it, uh, was writing from the recollection of Peter, but Peter didn't write it. Mark wrote it, so it reflects his, some of his um, literary style, but it's, it's Peter's recollection. And there's a little phrase, and immediately, or at once, that is used 52 times in the short book of Mark. The idea is this breakneck speed. And Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this. So you have all these pages of Mark. You already start reading, uh, and they call the, the first disciples in verses 14 and following 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at this teaching because he taught them as one of the authority, not the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law at that time constantly quoted other rabbis so they never had to settle in on the opinion of the world. You know, so they just all the rabbis, so and so said this, rabbi, so and so this, rabbi, so and so said this. And Jesus was saying things like, the kingdom of God is like this. And he said it with just boldness and unequivocally, and he just said it without dropping names. And so they were amazed at his authority. And just then, Verse 23, a man in their synagogue was possessed by an evil spirit. And if you look in the Greek language of the New Testament, really there's no word possessed. The word is diamonizomai, and one of the ways we might translate it is demonized. And it has to do with, it's kind of a continuum. 
you know, that, that to a lesser or greater degree, this man was troubled and tormented by his own power. And so he cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. So the us obviously implies that there was more than one demonic stronghold in his life. And they were telling the truth. Have you come to destroy us? Of course, the actual answer is yes. You know, Jesus had come to destroy them. And you you are the Holy One of God. And look at verse 25. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Now, I don't think my, my good professor in seminary years ago said, whenever you have to, as a pastor, whenever you have to go to the Greek to prove your point, you've already lost your point. Okay? And that's always been good advice because uh, Greek's not a perfect language, nor is English, nor is it a human language. So going back to the Greek doesn't necessarily prove anything. But one thing that's interesting here is the word ephesimai, which it says he rebuked them, be quiet. It's an imperative, and a couple of thoughts I just want to bring out. One is, uh, it's an imperative is just like a one-word sentence with an exclamation point. Like, stop. Quiet. You know, come, go, whatever. By definition, an imperative can only be spoken to a living being that has the potential of responding. Now, not just a human, because you can train a dog, sit, and the dog actually responds to your marriage. But you can't not, granted, every new kid in America has tried to do that with the traffic light. Change! <laughs> right? And it does, and I've even done it with my, sometimes we've walked our little grandsons, um, you know, we'll take them out to church here, and uh, uh, our little Jonah, who's three and a half, uh, I'm not careful, I said it sounded a little awkward because there were folks crossing the street with us that were um, not Caucasian. And he was waiting to see, he's waiting, he said, you can't walk till you see the white man. <laughs> it's like, yes, and he is white. <laughs> There's a red hand and a white man, you know, but it wasn't a racial comment, it was just an observation. And he gets tickled when we try to, you know, uh, predict when it's going to change. But our prediction, our speaking, isn't actually changing it. Right? There's, a, there's an internal switch that is going to change it when it changes it based on how it was programmed, period. So an imperative can only be used to a being. That's the point. So when Jesus rebukes the demons, and the word literally means to muzzle, it's, it's basically shut up with an exclamation point. And I know when you go teach your kids to say shut up. But if you have a new demon, you can tell them to shut up. So, and so he says, shut up. <laughs> and the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. So then, we go down to um, go down to verse forty-one and forty-two. Filled with compassion, these are left uh, out of leprosy. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing. You're willing to be clean. He said, "Be clean." Imperative. Immediately, the leprosy left him and was cured. What about biting the surgeon's hands and? And you know and all the other things we pray. I mean, so far his prayers have been shut up and be clean. Yeah, come on, Jesus, you good little where's your manners? You know? And so let's go over to chapter two of Mark, starting in verse eight. Um, this is where he deals the parallel. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what these Pharisees were thinking. Uh, in our hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say in the parallel? If you're sent to forgive, or take up, get up, take up your man and walk. 
He said, but so you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's the healing prayer. The healing prayer is get up, take up your mat, and go home. It's, it's, it's just strange because we're reading commands. We're reading imperatives. We're not reading, you know, these nice little, oh, just touch them and just, oh, just, you know, massage them and let them feel right. Shut up, be clean, get up, get out of here, and don't forget your mouth. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just strange. Now we go over to, let's go over to Luke chapter 4. Now Luke has, has a second, he has a, a, he remembers a story, or I should say it's because Peter is telling the story. In Luke chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, although Jesus says the same thing, be quiet, Jesus says sternly, come out of him and demon came out of him. But then the same story, it's the same event, just who dies. Then we have verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon, Simon Jesus. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. By the way, just, just this is just a little church history trivia. Simon Peter, or Peter, um, is considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be the first pope. Okay? And and popes and, and the first uh, Celibacy has always been a, a, for centuries, it's been a, a, a law, a rule within Catholic Church that priests cannot marry, therefore bishops can't marry, therefore the Pope can never marry. But the last time I checked, you can't have a mother in law unless you marry. So Peter's mother in law is sick and suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Verse 39 So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and left her. He said, he said, shut up. He said, go to the fever. Now, how do you, I mean, that's like speaking to the, the, the street fight, isn't it? You know, I mean, how can, I, how can a fever listen to you? Unless the presence of that fever was due to spiritual realities, spiritual entities behind the scenes, that Jesus understands and Jesus rebukes. Jesus actually tells them essentially to leave. And when he rebukes the fever, it says she got up at once and began to wait on them. And I used to always say, God, the lady's been sick. Come on. But that, what that is explaining in that culture is that she was completely wet. Okay? It wasn't a slam on, you know, that, that Jesus shouldn't have let her in. I mean, in that culture, her ability to get up and begin to wait on to be hospitable to her guests shows that the healing was absolutely complete. And that's the point. That it, it, it culturally, it would not have been uh, offensive or, or, you know, or, or being uh, insensitive to that woman at all. Now let's go over to Luke uh, 4.38. Excuse me, I just did that one. I'm sorry. Okay, so now... We've seen Jesus, he, 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 I think he does as examples, where he talks to diseases. John Wimber, who was the, the leader of the Vineyard Churches, Vineyard Ministry, the pastor of Vineyard Church for many years, John told me one time, and I was trying to get my hand around this, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'll repeat it for those who weren't here, about healing and healing prayers. And John said, get a cheap Bible, like a Google's library, and highlight all of the quotes, all of the prayers of Jesus over people. And I went through all four Gospels. And it was really enlightening because it was seen, stretch out, go, leave, shut up, <laughs> you know, be healed, be well, 
get up. It was all commands. I mean, all of them were, were, were these stern, harsh commands. And so, let's turn to Matthew 21. I want to show just a brief teaching to kind of, and we're going to spend a little time with some questions, because this always uh, confuses people. In Matthew 21, we have a triumphal entry, which is what we know as Palm Sunday. Okay? It's the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And of course, he, he, uh, in fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament, they come into Jerusalem. Uh, he's on the donkey, which fulfills the passage in Zechariah and, and the prophecy there. And so, in verse 7, excuse me, chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 12, Jesus enters the temple. And this is the famous story where Jesus knocks over the money changers, you know, tables and all of that. Jesus entered the temple area and wrote out all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, that in my house we call the house of prayer. And what, what they would have immediately known is the end of that passage in Isaiah was the house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations, for all ethnic groups. And you're making a, a, a den of robbers. The blind that came, Lane came to him at the temple and he healed them. Uh, and, and so we have this whole uh, discourse. So what's happening is the Jewish people, the leaders, are rejecting Jesus. And Jesus has just prophesied before that they would reject him. And the fig tree was representative of the nation of Israel. So in verse 18 it says, Early in the morning, as he was on his way back into the city, they must have stayed in some guest house outside the city walls, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree with you. Now we know from the Mark version of it, it adds an extra little note there. It says, For it is not the season for figs. Now think about that. It's not the season for figs. It's like going out right now, you know, to a fruit tree in your backyard and getting mad at the tree for not having fruit at the beginning of March. It's just the way it is. Well, it's, think about it. Why is it the way it is? It's the way it is because early in, when men and women sinned and fell, everything changed, including creation itself. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself groans with the return of the Lord and the restoration and the recreation of that new heaven and new earth. Because in the garden, it says that everything was available all the time. So even seasons, as much as we enjoy seasons, even seasons are essentially kind of a, a, a natural representation of the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world. And that the kingdom of God is not fully and completely consummated in this current world. Because there's periods of time when you can't go and get it. Right? And it says, he spoke to the tree. And it says, and, and what's interesting is, um, in, in, again, in the, in the Mark version, it notes, it says, and he spoke to the tree and cursed it, and his disciples took note of that. I think so. He's talking to the tree. Are you going to bring up the comments? And so, in, in the Mark version, it talks about a conversation afterwards when the tree is withered, and Jesus is going to explain himself. Uh, and it does the same thing here. It's like, what, what's this all about? You are talking to trees and you're 
cursing them. And we know that the, the analogy there is really uh, that the, the, the nation of Israel has has rejected the Messiah and there is going to be judgment and there was in 87 when the temple was destroyed and, and um, they're scattered. But still, he's talking to a tree. And then he says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done with the victory, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Well, that's helpful. Thank you for clearing that up. The, the Lord, why are, you ta- why are you talking to a tree? Well, let me tell you, if you have faith, you can say to that mountain, be removed and cast and see it will be. Okay, that clears everything up. What is he talking about? Well, what we don't see, because we're looking with Gentile eyes, but they would have clearly understood this, because it's very similar language to Isaiah chapter 40, which is a very famous uh, passage about the coming of the Messiah. It says in verse 3, talking about, prophesying really about John the Baptist, a voice of one in the desert calling, prepare ye the way of the Lord. that sound familiar? Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So this is what we call eschatological history. Meaning, it's, it's history, but it has to do with the end of all times, the end of the age. In the picture there, we're thinking of the children of Israel in the wilderness, remember? And they're being led. How are they led at, during the day? How do they know that God was leading? During the day. And at night? Fine. Well, usually at night they were just bedding down and, you know, staying put, but they saw the presence of the Lord was there. Now, when you've got, and, and we, we always throw out three million, that's because we know from the text there were about 600,000 men, and we're assuming just kind of, you know, with wives and with kids, somewhere in the three million range, you know, we, we just really don't know. But needless to say, that's a lot of people. We, we took our grandsons to the St. Patrick's Day very yesterday, and they, they said there were about 30,000 people. Um, you know, that's 100 times that. That's a lot of people. And so, when you're picking up and breaking down camp, and you're moving, there's two things that would be great hindrances to your progress. Mountains and valleys. Deep canyons. Because in the Holy Land area, they didn't have, we're not talking gentle little meadows. We're talking rugged, rocky caverns. Okay? With no bridge. So how far do you have to go with all your people to get to a place where they can actually all get down, the elderly, the children, all of their carts, all their livestock? Think about the, the just the logistics of getting down there to cross over and then to get back up to the other side because the clouds on the other side, the Lord's saying, this is the way. We're saying, oh great, there's a canyon. Or there's a mountain. Well, it's, you can't take everybody over the mountain, and so that we know that the base of the mountain is going to be extraordinarily long out of the way. So what he says prophetically is that at the coming of the Lord, the obstacles, the natural physical obstacles that would, that would hinder the way of the Lord are going to be all either raised or lowered to make way for the Lord. Even if even if they're natural, even if they've been there longer than you've been there. So when Jesus says, 
You can say to the mountain, be cast down and removed into the sea. What he seems to be saying is, at the coming of the Messiah, the inauguration of the new age, the new kingdom, we have authority in the name of Jesus to actually remove or pray for the removal of obstacles to the coming of the king in the situation in a person's life, whether it's an individual or a group. And so Jesus is speaking to fevers in the same way he can speak to mountains to be removed. He's speaking to people that are demonically tortured and oppressed the way that he can speak to a mountain or a valley. He's speaking to leprosy like he speaks to a fig tree and curses. And he does all this saying, this is how you do it. And so, you know, we, we look at that and we say, well, how is that, uh, what does that say for us? Well, what I think it's trying to say is that when we are praying, we need to, we need to at some point, you know, we tend to pray around the request. You know, oh Lord, I am in patience. We work in our life in this way. And we die with certain things. And those are all valid, genuine prayers. And then and this and this and this. And at some point, the person's got cancer. The person's got diabetes. The person's got a broken limb. At some point, we pray for healing for that thing. Are they going to be healed? I don't know. But not everybody's healed all the time, and we're never going to put the pressure on them. We're never going to, you know, manipulate them. But we are at some point going to perhaps lay our hand on them and say, diabetes, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. Lord, manifest your kingdom in this person's life. Lord, by your spirit come and move in this person's life. Not, not, again, we're not putting the pressure on the person, but we are actually taking authority as agents of the kingdom of God. Think of yourself now not just as a person with a passport in a foreign country, but now you are an ambassador. Because aren't we called ambassadors for Christ? You've got a diplomatic passport. Okay? And so we are actually now speaking the words of Christ into situations right here in this present evil age, praying that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so questions uh, right off the bat. Um, is this the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Yes. Yes. Okay. But I've heard it a lot of times before. Good. But the reason that it's the weirdest thing that I've ever heard a couple of Very good. The question, yes, the question for the sake of the tape is that 
when you see the example in the scriptures, but at the bottom line is when you, you know it's not all going to be fulfilled in this world, and how do you not make people feel bad or disappointed or what have you? Um, and my immediate thought is twofold. What is we do have in the scriptures? We do have not completely successful prayer. Uh, we have the disciples trying to cast a demon out of this kid, and it gets worse and bad or worse. And they come to Jesus and say, why were we unable to do this? So right there, there's a, there's a failure. And, and Jesus uses the failure as a learning opportunity. And, and it, we are completely um, illuminated by it because Jesus says, this time only comes out by prayer and fasting, and then he proceeds to cast the demon out immediately. That, that's a whole other thing, but it would seem to say that there was some kind of dynamic in spiritual warfare where the disciples were not prepared at that point, you know, like they could or should have been, like in that Then you have that interesting story where Jesus is praying for the blind guy, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and he spits the ground, spits the out, and he said, how are you doing? And the guy said, I see men in the streets walking, and it says, Jesus prayed for him in seconds. So the guy had a degree of abatement of his symptoms, but not complete. And Jesus actually prays a second time, which is pretty profound when you, when you think about it. Um, and so, so you do have the trial error, but, but beyond that, and this is what I mentioned before, if we come to the person who wants prayer, and we are affirming and loving and pray for them, and then are encouraging and loving at the close of prayer, the worst that happens is they feel loved and cared for. You know? I think where it gets bad is if you put all the pressure on them, you don't feel better? <laughs> you know, and put some kind of a guilt trip on But you can say, let me know how you're doing this week. You know, and I would love to pray for you next week. You know? Because here's the other truth. I've seen people do it. How many of you pray for somebody? I mean, I, this isn't like a you know talent contest. But, uh, how many of you have seen miraculous? You've seen somebody get better as a result of that. Okay, we've got you know ten or twelve of us. I've seen a lot more people not heal than heal, but I know that I wouldn't see any of these people heal if I hadn't taken the step of faith to actually pray. It, it's incomplete, but it is there. It is a sign of His coming. Uh huh.
and feel like, oh, the guy got me found my keys. God got me the great parking space at the mall when I was going to buy some shoes. But God's unable to heal a two-year-old with cancer. You know, I mean, or I will. Yeah. So, so there's those, those challenges. Um, are you all familiar with, with, with what's called um, in kind of theodicy? That's theos God with D-I-C-Y at the end. Theodicy is the theological or philosophical uh, subject of how can a loving and all-sovereign God allow suffering in the world? The problem of suffering or the problem of evil is often what it's referred to. Okay? And, and this is not new to our generation by any means. Okay? But the idea, how can a loving God allow these horrible things? About 300 years before Christ, a Greek philosopher said either it said that if God is all-powerful but not willing to eradicate disease, then he is malevolent. If God is willing and wants to eradicate disease and suffering, but is unable to, he's not all-powerful, and so you're stuck with either a malevolent, all-powerful God or a uh, kind, compassionate God that is not in fact all-powerful. And it's a riddle that the Greeks struggled with for centuries. I have a case for um, free choice. Okay. Um, I think uh, we have a God mm-hmm. that doesn't want to have struggles. And um, if you were to step in every moment for disease or plague or famine, um, keys, um, then he'd have to step in every expectation of a child uh, to have a father that always fixes problems. problem. Um, I think God, above all else, respects our free choice. And in that covenant, they again. And so I think he loves us more than anything. He's a father that's willing to have his hands off because we ask for it. But John, and your thoughtful comments are not about merit, because I think there's an enormous amount of truth in that. The challenge is when the non-Christian says, what did the two-year-old who has cancer do to deserve this? And, and people like, what's his name, that real um, arrogant, snarky atheist, Richard Dawkins. You need to get you doing a word for arrogance, his name. Um, but his comments are, why would I want to serve a God that that, that's that mean and brutal and malicious and goes on and on and on? You know, and those kids are real serious philosophical questions. And yet, what we do see, part of what you said, is there is a fallen, broken world that God promises will be restored. I will, the scripture says he will reconcile all things in Christ. Not just all people, all things. That means the natural universe too. That it's all going to work right one day. That there is going to be a, a both justice and mercy, there is going to be that. And yet, here's the other side to the whole healing question. Um, a lot of the healing that takes place in the New Testament seems to be pivotal in bringing large groups of people to Christ. That's the wonders part. The sign that points to the kingdom of wonder is, wow, there's a God who actually cares. So, uh, John Miller wrote a book decades ago that became very popular in the, in the church argument called Power of Angels. The idea that uh, there has been historically... Um, Christian sociologists have looked at three different types of evangelism. There, there's um, 
proclamation evangelism, you know, where you preach it out, there's, there's persuasion evangelism, where you're not just preaching, but you say, the buses will wait, <laughs> come forward now, you know. There's presence evangelism, where compassion feeds little children in the name of Christ, and there is a presence of God's uh, of God in that environment, in that community, because of that feeding center, for example. And Wimber suggested that there's a fourth one, power evangelism, because it says when he was healed, many the people were astonished when the gallery of demoniac is dressed and, and, and fully dressed and in his right mind and sitting there, it says they were all afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they knew God had just moved in their midst and they weren't right with them. But what a great opportunity. You know, so I think we can't minimize the, the fact that some of the signs and wonders stuff is for the purpose of drawing attention to Jesus. You know, drawing attention to his desire to reconcile all things to himself. But when we get down to what does the scripture command us? It doesn't command us to figure this out, but it does command us to pray for the sick. You know? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, and then again in Luke 9 and 10, he says, preach the gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom dies in hand, heal the sick, preach good news to the poor, cast out demons, raise the dead. I mean, you know, he gives that little list, right? To the disciples, well, that's now fast over to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says to the disciples, Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. What did he command them? Preach the gospel of the kingdom, make good news to the poor, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Oh, that's what he commanded them to do. Now he tells the disciples, you go to all the world and make disciples, baptize them, establish them in the community of faith and church, and you teach them to obey, and as some translations say observe, but the Greek words clearly obey. You teach them to do what I command you. And the word disciples, make disciples, the word disciples in Athesis, it's what you get to do in mathematics. Because the early idea of a disciple was, was an apprentice who learned in, in science and math, learned math from the master by repeating what the master did and just repeating it over and over and over so they could do the same things that the master did. That was the idea of mathematics, was, was being able to do what your master did, not just understand it, but do it. You know? And so, isn't that interesting? So we're in the, in the one ending in Mark, and some argue that they may have been added later in Mark chapter 16, where he said, These signs shall follow those who believe. You know, they will lay their hands upon the sick, and they will recover. So, I have had the same situation in my pastoral ministry where I am praying for someone that I know is at the close of their life. I've been praying for healing. And I know they're at their death, on their deathbed. And and transitioning from having prayed for healing to praying for the family as this person, you know, transitions into God's presence. And boy, I don't understand that. And it rips my heart out. And at the same time, the scripture says to be absent God in his presence of the Lord. And so, in both cases, we're praying for the presence of the Lord to be 
in and among and around that person's life and those people's lives. Uh, I have found in the healing ministry, it switches from physical healing to spiritual healing to emotional um, deliverance and healing so often it's so fluid. You thought you were going to pray for somebody's diabetes and now you're praying for the marriage. You thought you were praying for somebody's, um, you know, kidney stones or whatever, and now you're praying for this whole whole bunch of hurt in their past that comes out that that pain just seems to touch and, and open up and next thing you know you're mentioning in that capacity. But it says that he, he comes to heal the broken heart. You know, he gives sight to the blind and, and to uh, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord the freedom from debt and indebtedness, not just financial, but indebtedness to the, to the guilt and the wounds of the past that, that just plague them. So it, it, it seems to be, if I can use this term in a, in, a, in a godly way, holistic. The healing that I see the most effective is a holistic healing where we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just, I'm going to start with the physical need because that's the one I see and that's the one the person came to me to be complaints. Hi, I'm Lee Stephen, how can I pray for you? I have an appointment with the, you know, with the doctor on Tuesday and we got an MRI and a biopsy. And so obviously that's how we're going to pray. But as we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we're listening to that person, we're also listening to the Holy Spirit. It's quite possible it shifts. How many of you have seen that more than once? Yeah. Some other questions. Um, this is good. Um, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. I was sitting next to uh, a woman who her name is Kavon, most of the place, and her delivery in Bibles. Mm-hmm. Um, I had pain in my hand, and I asked her to test her with my hand, and put my hands on her. And, I, and then I took the Bible, and I said, Let me put your name in the book. Supposed to be, and the guy was driving us, the, the pastor was driving us, still filming, and he stopped 
we would take this from point A to point B, and this little village was presumably going to beat you up. And so we had no way of communicating because he didn't see people. He was just our driver. But he, he, we'd get out, and very short people, you know, and they all came out because this white holy man and his wife were there or something. And all of a sudden, they pushed out from the, from the crowd this little girl who was very deformed. She walked on all fours and had clubbed hands and feet, and hair was chopped off, unlike the lady and girls who had a long, beautiful black hair with mothers of braid and their crowns and all that. This little girl, I don't know if she was orphan or what, and, and clearly they wanted us to pray for her. And then the night, and I, you know, dirt obviously, and then I both just dropped to her knees, almost to the ground, praying for this little girl. We so much wanted to see a miraculous healing, you know, same thing. And God used that so profoundly in our life, and I didn't realize until even later, how significant it was for these people who view someone like that so low to see us who were viewed as being at this really high level of society bowing down and, and, and in the dirt crying over this little girl and praying for her and realize that's part of healing ministry too is bringing Jesus to the lowly. And I don't know, but I wonder was that whole village more accepted to the gospel as a result? And if people came to Christ as a result of that, clearly there was healing that happened in that village. Even though we didn't see any miracle at that moment, just like you. But, um, yeah, we, we, I will always pray for God's presence to come into every situation. You know, uh, I can't make them better, but I can bring the, the love and the power of God. And occasionally you see somebody actually heal. My best friend was just, he grew up with me in the Lutheran church, but he had just so gotten so worldly, he didn't want anything to do with God. And then I brought him to a meeting, and a guy had a word of knowledge about a hernia, and he was, a word, you know, like a word just came to him, and he called out, and he got prayer, and he was healed before he came to Christ. And at the end of that service, he responded to the gospel, and he came to Christ. And that was um, 40 plus years ago. And, uh, and he and his wife, they have four kids and a gazillion grandkids, and they're very active in a great church, James River Sunday of God in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, his wife's on staff, and he's And it was all because he got healed, physically healed, and that led him to getting saved. I mean, God saved an unbeliever. I mean, God healed an unbeliever first, which made him want to respond to the gospel. I'd say, I would say it was a pretty, and it was just a hernia. It wasn't cancer, it wasn't a land, it was maybe all that. That hernia led to his response to the gospel, and even as a, he's a businessman, he's not in full time ministry, but who knows how many scores and scores of people that have come to Christ as a result of his witness over, over the decades. Other questions? These are great questions. Let's see.
I really do. The Bible, the Martha wrote that leper's name in, and the gift of that pen was, was it was healing. It was remarkable. It really started, that was a, a means of grace. That was sacramental, if you use that term. You know, to bring about the, the grace of God. What a remarkable story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, by the way, uh, you know, John in the Revelation talks about his eyes were like blazing fire, so I guess the student works really gets it, otherwise it all Because think about how the scripture talking about that. You know, we see as though through a glass dimly or darkly, because then we shall see face to face. And, and you know, right now it's at best kind of a through the glass darkly, you know, it's it's, it's the already and the not yet. It's not perfect. When the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass. And the perfect was not the fulfillment of the canon of scriptures, my dear uh, cessationist, dispensational friends, saying we believe that just the spirit don't exist anymore because that first Corinthians passage. Um, they say the perfect was when the canon of scripture was completed. Well, the canon of scripture process it was like making sausage. You didn't want to actually see it happen. It was like the product at the end. It was a rather incomplete process through a period of time. That's clearly in context talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Because then we shall know we will hear and then we shall see him face to face. And that hasn't happened yet. Any other, any other questions? And we'll back to kind of just close in general prayer as we go along with this. was good to have us. Does, does it make sense about the this crazy idea of speaking to the thing in prayer to the authority over Now I'm not saying just a practical thing. Demons and spiritual entities are not death. So volume isn't necessary. You know, you know, we get all weird. You don't even have, I remember Linda and I preached a real quick story. Um, my old church that I was at staff for years had a very restrictive theology with regard to demonic kinds of things. And they didn't think any of that could really happen and they weren't real hip on me praying for that stuff. I was invited back when I was an Indian pastor. I was invited back, this is decades ago now, to preach at this church on a Sunday night service. And then I was kind of surprised because they didn't let guys in the day come. You know, there were, you know, 1,500 folks there. And I'm preaching, and I have this call for people who want prayer, want ministry, want healing to come forward. And people come forward, and all of a sudden, I think the front row, or the front of the prayer line, was this guy who starts manifesting the demonic spirit. Clearly, if you've seen that, you know. And it's like, oh, shit. You know, and, and I had a, um, didn't have a wireless, I had a, you know, a handheld mic. And, you know, it's the guy's playing the music and all that. And it's like, this is going to mess up. The enemy is going to use this to divide these two congregations to bring disunity. So I remember going over there, I went over there, and you ever yelled while whistling? I went, it's like, you know, it's like, I'm yelling at this meeting without any words for him. And all of a sudden, and he just slumps over into the pew, which is the front pew. And he kind of goes, Oh, our friend is just kind of overwhelmed and he's going to answer him. And then, Well, okay, let's send the next verse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you don't have to shout and scream, you know? Even if you have to scream silently, you know, um, don't make the person feel weird. You know, but and they can say, well, we're just going to pray that God is coming. You can, you can just quietly say, you know, we're going to be in this place in Jesus' name. 
Now you don't have to scream. Cancer be gone. You know, just move in Jesus' name. You know, don't make the person feel weird. Just but speak to the speak to it. Tell the fever to go. Okay, let's pray. And gosh, it's, it's already 10:30. It's hard to believe. Next week is our wrap-up. Next week, I really want invite your friends. Uh, invite people that aren't your friends. We will be friends afterwards. Because uh, I would like to take the bulk of the time next week to just pray for people that have any kind of condition or problem. So uh, we might have a little bit of focusing on, on, on content, but mostly I would like us just to actually pray for folks. Okay, so we'll be here at 9 next week. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for receiving Jesus in the ascension after his resurrection, because Lord, it was that moment when you released the Holy Spirit, you sent the Comforter. The Holy Spirit has come to fill believers, to fill us, that we would not have to be alone. We wouldn't have to just corporately wait for the cloud by day and the fire by night. But the cloud of your Spirit and the fire of your Spirit can abide in and upon each one of us at all times. And Lord, we need to be moved by your Spirit daily and even moment by moment. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and descend on each one of us. And I pray that this week, we would have an opportunity, maybe even today, maybe even during or after service today, we would have an opportunity, Lord, to step out in faith, to pray for someone, that the kingdom of God would come upon them, Lord God, that the will of God in heaven would be done on earth in their life. We ask, Lord, for your glory, for your sake, that these things would happen in Jesus' name.